Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not something you can earn. Forgiveness is probably not something you deserve, but forgiveness is a choice. And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today, we speak to entrepreneur, investor, philanthropist, and advocate, Catherine Hoke, who is well known for starting prison entrepreneurship program at the age of 27 to being the founder and CEO of Defy Ventures, a national organization that transforms the lives of business leaders and people with criminal histories through their collaboration along the entrepreneurial journey. Prior, Catherine was an associate at private equity firm Summit Partners and went on to become the director of investment development at American Securities. In this week's episode, she tells us how she went from the corporate world to prison, her experiences meeting people in prison she's helped turn into real-world entrepreneurs, outline misconceptions about prisoners, and her observations on the similarities between them and CEOs. Catherine also offers advice on how you can find your calling, how to overcome a crisis, and her personal lowest point. She has a book that is now out called A Second Chance for you, for me, and for the rest of us that can now be found on Amazon. There's that and many more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. So thank you, Catherine, so much for coming on the show today. It's my great honor. Thank you for having me. And I'd love to start out with your background and talk about your early days in in the working world. You started out as an investor, is that right? Yes, I started off previously selling Cutco knives. And uh, then my first real job out of college was working at Summit Partners, which is a venture capital slash private equity firm. And then I worked in New York City at American Securities Capital Partners as a director of investment development. How old were you when you were selling Cutco knives? I was a teenager. I was like 15, 16, scrappily getting by and making some money. What were your teenage years like? Well, I was the only girl on the boys high school wrestling team. And I was intensely driven toward my goals. And I was a pretty serious student. So I was spent a lot of my time sweating it out on the wrestling mat and working hard to make weight for my matches every week. And then how did you go from the corporate world to the prison world? What's what was that story? I was looking for my calling or purpose in life, what I refer to as my generous hustle. I wanted to see how I could combine my skills, my love of business and entrepreneurship with also making a difference in the world. So I was like kissing a lot of frogs, meaning I was saying yes to a lot of different opportunities. I uh, went to Romania to work in an orphanage with HIV positive children for a while. I explored a lot of different opportunities for giving back. And I never thought it would be prison related. Because when I was 12 years old, a good friend of mine was brutally murdered by two 16 year old boys. And so when I was 26, living in New York City, I had a friend over for dinner. She was an executive at JP Morgan. She asked me what I was doing for Easter weekend. And I already had booked tickets to go to California to be with family. And she said, want to come to prison in Texas. And my first gut reaction was like, "Mm, no, thanks. Never been in Texas. Don't care to don't care about people in prison, have pretty rotten opinions of incarcerated people. It wasn't really my cup of tea. And although I had been looking for a way to give back and make a difference, I just didn't think it would be through this avenue. And what happened? I read in the book that that you did indeed change your plan and go to Texas. What was that like? 
Well, she challenged me and she said, haven't you been given grace and many second chances? And I was like, of course I have. You know, I've made many mistakes and I'm grateful for the grace that I've been given. And she was very persuasive in speaking about people who are incarcerated, not as the wild caged animals that I had perceived them to be, but rather as human beings who have made mistakes not everyone in prison wants to change. Not everyone in prison wants a second chance. And the people who like being criminals are not the ones that I advocate for. But she told me that many people who are there have followed legacies of incarceration, like 70% of the children of incarcerated people follow in their parents' footsteps. So many of them haven't really known much aside from a lifestyle that would lead to prison the way that she spoke about them, it piqued my curiosity. I wouldn't say that I was really engaged with empathy or compassion or seeing any opportunity, but it was intriguing enough to me since I was at least saying that I was praying to find my calling. And I said I was willing to do anything to figure out what my purpose on earth was. So I ended up saying yes. And it was really after I flew to Texas, I went to four different prisons that first weekend. And the first person that I met in prison, his name is Johnny. And when I asked him about his story, he told me about how his grandfather had murdered his father right in front of him when he was eight years old. And then a few years later, he was given drugs to sell and then he got jumped into a gang. And at age 18, he was incarcerated. And what is very sad to me is that Johnny's story is not an outlier. It's all too common. And many people who are incarcerated, I've come to see and realize that we're not so much in the second chance business, but it's often more of a legitimate first chance. I was just in a prison last week, and we do this exercise called Step to the Line. And you step to the line if the statement is true. So I said, step to the line if you have been arrested. And we had about 70 executives, CEOs, VCs in prison that day. And about a third of them were at the line for having been arrested at some point in their lives. And then I say, and all of our, our guys, obviously, are at the line. I call them people that we serve entrepreneurs in training or EITs. So they're all at the line. Then I say, step to the line if you have done something for which you could have been arrested, but you did not get arrested. And every volunteer steps forward. And I would be at the line on that, too. And I believe that we're all X-somethings. And, but for the grace of God, there go I. And I keep going through all my questions. And last week I saw something that really struck me, even though it's unfortunately also not very uncommon. I said, step to the line if you are arrested for the first time before the age of 16. And about three quarters of our EITs are at the line. Stay at the line if you're arrested the first time before the age of 14, 13, 12. And I keep counting backwards. And even for being arrested by the age of 10, half of our EITs are still at the line. And that's a pretty high number. But America is a country, I've learned, that loves to warehouse human potential. And if other people's kids might get a timeout for it or maybe a spanking at best, like in some communities, those kids get arrested and cuffed. And stay at the line if you are arrested before the age of eight. There are four young men who remain at the line. Seven 
There's one guy who remains at the line. And in my mind, these guys are now 18 to 20 years old, these four guys who were arrested at the ages of seven and eight. And I'm just picturing how tiny a seven-year-old is. A seven-year-old maybe comes up to my waist or a little past my waist. And I'm thinking of a young, little, scared boy who stole food from his neighbor's house because he was starving or who beat up a boy who was three years older than him at the park when he was getting picked on. And I'm thinking of this boy with handcuffs around his wrists that are probably too big for his little wrists and him getting fingerprinted and that beginning being the beginning of his life. That's why I do this work. The people I serve, they make big mistakes, but many of them were born into this future and this future can change. These legacies of incarceration and violence they can change. And not only can people not go back to prison, they're able to become amazing entrepreneurs because the people that I have the privilege of working with, many of them are natural born entrepreneurs who are incredibly scrappy and have better sales skills than I developed from my Cutco sales days. <laughs> well, first, I want to say congratulations and, and thank you for, for all the work you're doing since I, I know it's really making a difference. Before going into talking a little bit about what prisoners have in common with CEOs, I want to ask, and what do you wish you had started doing or done more of much earlier in your career, specifically like actions or activities with, with compounding effects? Boy, that's a great question. Nothing is coming to mind on what I wish I had done a lot more of right now, because I feel like when I decided at 24 that I wanted to figure out what my calling purpose was, I attacked that with my everything. So I'll tell you some of the things that I did that served me really well, because nothing's coming to mind on what I wish I had stopped doing earlier. When I was 26 and working in this fancy private equity job in Manhattan, making more money than I needed, I had a meeting with a private equity colleague of mine. And I told him about my dream for starting prison entrepreneurship program, the first organization I started in Texas. But I told him how scared I was and I didn't know how I would make a salary and I was making a nice salary and all my friends were talking smack about me saying I had lost my mind to care about this prison thing. And he said to me, and these words have marked me, every day of your life that you spend doing something that is not your future is a wasted day of your life. I was like, oh my gosh, I knew I did not want to be a private equity investor for the rest of my life. I walked into my boss's office the next day, terrified, clueless, naive, and said, I'm starting this prison program. I really went out on a limb. And I think when I see, I talk to a lot of young people now who want to start something, whether it's a for-profit company or start following their dream. What I see holds people back more than anything is what will other people think of me? And what I would say is, what will you think of you if you keep for another day doing what is not making you tick, what you are not born to do? And not everyone has the luxury of just quitting your job and moving to another state and starting what you want to do. But everybody at least has the possibility of making time on the side to start saying yes to things that make you uncomfortable. Like when I went to Romania to work with HIV positive orphans the first time, that was super uncomfortable for me. I got out of my comfort zone. I said yes to all types of invitations and going to prison was one of those. What if I had not said yes to going to prison? So I sacrificed financially, because I knew I wanted to be doing something different with my life. And I didn't know what it was. I started saving a lot of money doing fairly unconventional things. Because for most people who want to start what I call your generous hustle, 
it's usually going to take some form of a financial sacrifice. Like if you want to start your own business, you won't be making the same income that you do if you're if you keep the job that you're currently making or if you want to start a nonprofit or if you want to travel around the world to start living off of less right now to see what that leads to and see how you feel about it when you start living off of less. I found that money was not what made me happy. I want to go a little bit back to prison. What do prisoners have in common with the you know volunteers, the CEOs, the entrepreneurs that you work with? Yeah. So our slogan at Defy Ventures is transform your hustle. So the premise is in there is that there's some hustle to begin with. And many successful CEOs or leaders or entrepreneurs consider themselves to be natural born hustlers. And that's the same for many, not all, but many people who find themselves incarcerated. Many of them were selling gum out of their gym locker, and then it turned into drugs, and then they found themselves part, part of a gang and committing crimes. And so we transformed that hustle. And I learned for the first time when I was 26 on that first prison visit that many drug rings and gangs have a whole lot in common with successful companies. They have bylaws and boards of directors and accountants, and uh, they have sales strategies, and they corner their markets. They didn't exactly nail their risk management strategies because all the people in prison got busted. But what would happen if they went equipped, if they went legit with their skill sets? That's the idea behind Defy. And when you're running a drug ring or a gang, you face some pretty tough competitors. Your life is on the line, though, quite literally, when you're selling drugs or when you're in that in that world. They're definitely managing toward a bottom line. Um, many drug rings and gangs have way better profit margins than even some software companies. Good leaders have to be charismatic and be able to motivate a team toward their goals. And leaders of gangs and drug rings are able to do that. Um, I would say that one thing that is a big difference between some for-profit companies and gangs or drug rings is that there are many companies that I admire so much in the world that are, in fact, generously hustling, where they have a double bottom line. So they have a financial bottom line, but they're also using their product and their profits to make a positive difference in the lives of their employees and in society. And I'm so inspired by the number of companies that have joined the ranks of Defy. So many companies like Google and Facebook and many others take company field trips to prison where they'll actually bring their employees to prison to gain empathy and awareness of what they can do to make the world a better place. And someone who is leading a drug dealing empire typically is using his or her skill set in a way that is not building up society that is not generously hustling. And your book, which is called Second Chance, just came out. What inspired you to write that? Well, Defy is my own second chance. I mean, I've had more than a second chance in my life, but I have been the beneficiary of grace and opportunity from people and mentors who believed in me even when I was at my lowest point in my life and saw no potential in myself. And so I wrote the book because when I was at my lowest point eight years ago and didn't see a future, I promised God that if I did have a second chance, that I would use my everything to pour into second chances or 50th chances for people who have screwed up, which is not only 
people with criminal histories, but it's also to anyone who's listening to this podcast. All of us have made mistakes. And I have seen that even though you might be on this side of the fences, meaning you're not physically incarcerated, I see every day the way that humans who make mistakes, all of us, we can be incarcerated in our minds and our hearts over the shame that feeds us these beat down messages that say, you suck, you will never amount to anything. If anyone knew the real you, they would not love you or accept you. You are not enough. And so I wrote this book to create awareness for Defy Ventures about second chances. And one of the messages is, look, if people who have made these really big mistakes where they have now spent 20 years of their lives incarcerated, if they can overcome their shame, if they can find it in themselves to forgive themselves, if they can find other people to forgive them, and then they get out of prison and they start a successful company. And our program is called CEO of Your New Life. They become the CEOs of their new lives. They become the parents they've always wanted to be. They become employers. If they can do that and have a better future, so can you. So I hope I hope this book is a gift to other people. And I like to say I'm a forgiveness parrot. If you choose to forgive yourself or forgive one other person, then I'm glad that I've written the book. And if you've already forgiven yourself for everything and believe in yourself and your future and you're already living your calling, maybe this book could be a gift to somebody else who is struggling with shame or feeling worthless. What's the number one tip you have for someone who is at their lowest point, you know, feeling shame or worthless? If I could beat this into your brain, I would. You are not your past. You are not equal to the worst thing that you have done. You made a bad decision. So have I. You hate what you did. We all hate what you did. Okay. We cannot change the past, but you are capable of having a beautiful future, regardless of who you are. But if you want to have a future worth fighting for, you have to stop living in the past. So let's reconcile the past. And in my book, I talk about, for example, how to confess something, because if you keep living in shame and secrecy, it'll probably eat you alive like it has for me in my hard times. Um, a confession is not the same as forgiveness. So forgive yourself. And many people have a really hard time with the idea of forgiving themselves. And what we teach at Defy is forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not something you can earn. Forgiveness is probably not something you deserve. But forgiveness is a choice. So if you tell yourself, I forgive me, or I forgive him, or I forgive her, it's a really tough thing to say. And then we encourage you to get stubborn about forgiveness. Because that right after you say, I forgive me, your brain is going to say, psych, no, I don't. You're a loser. You suck. You're going to do it again. And all these other negative messages of, of shame that your brain will probably replay. And then get stubborn about it. And when I ask you, what is that tape of shame that plays in your brain? If it says, you're a loser, I would ask you, would you allow anyone to walk up to your face and to say out loud the tape of shame that you say to yourself all day long. 
you're a loser. You suck. You won't amount to anything. You wouldn't allow anyone to say that to you. Why do you allow your own brain to say that to you? What if you could take control of the, of the words in your own brain and reverse it? And every time that your brain says something negative, reminding yourself stubbornly, I forgive me or I forgive him. And when it's about forgiving God or forgiving someone that you're really mad at, you might say, well, that person hasn't asked for my forgiveness or that person hasn't deserved the forgiveness. And then what I would say is when you think back to whatever act that was committed that seems so unforgivable to you, what are the feelings that brew in your heart? And typically when I ask my EITs about this, they say things like resentment, hate, vengeance, bitterness, depression, all these ugly things. So I'm like, well, you want to keep your big ball of hate? You want to walk around with that big ball of hate burning in your heart? Think about the last time that your hate decided for you in your life. Do you want to be that person? Because if you don't, you can choose forgiveness. Is forgiveness for me or for the other person? And we talk about how forgiveness is for me. Sure, it can be good for the other person too, but forgiveness frees me. And when I choose not to forgive me or the other person, I live in the past. So you want to keep being shackled to a past that you hate? Don't forgive. You want to have a better future? Reconcile your past. Understand it so you can do your best not to repeat it. Choose forgiveness every single day. Pound it into your brain. Surround yourself in a community like Defies that says, we take ownership of our mistakes. We are not our past mistake. That's not who we are. And we can have a better future. So choose forgiveness every day and then apply your full self to discovering what that future can look like. That's a a really great answer. Thank you for sharing that. And you you spoke about, you know, your lowest point. What what was your, your lowest point? After jumping ship from my job and starting prison entrepreneurship program, which is still going in Texas today, I had been leading that organization, PEP, for five years with tremendous success. And I had been married for nine years. I got married when I was 22 years old. And one thing I said I would never be was a divorced woman. So I was living in Texas. I was immersed in a very Christian community where people say things all the time like God hates divorce and divorce is sin. I was so driven to getting PEP to be a great success that I missed many opportunities to be a wife. And when I was 31, I was handed divorce papers and that came unexpectedly to me. And in the wake of my divorce, I went through a lot of hardship. I was, I was hospitalized. I had pneumonia, back to back pneumonias. And when I had to move out of my house, I had been taking care of other people for a long time. And now I was at a low point covered in shame as a divorced woman. And I, I didn't exactly want to send a press release about my news. I was so down on myself. And like when I was in the hospital and didn't know who to call to come and pick me up, that was a pretty low point of my life. The people that I confided in about my personal failure were other people who I knew had had gone through failure themselves. They were released graduates from PEP in Texas. So they were men who had been graduates of my program and were out of prison. And I told them about my divorce and then they had my back. They helped me move out of my house and pick me up from the hospital. And in a moment of weakness, I crossed boundaries and I had relationships with people who had gotten out of the Texas prison system. And what I did was not illegal, 
but I knew better. I knew it was a bad leadership decision. I knew that if the Texas prison system found out that they would not like it, it went against my personal and spiritual values. I mean, I just, I knew better. And at my low point, I still made a short-sighted decision that I've regretted to this day. Well, when I was asked and confronted about my choices, I was honest about it. And I feared that my honesty might cost me my everything. And it did, or I should say almost my everything. But when I got honest about my scandal, it felt like it was costing me everything. The Texas prison system forced my resignation and they forced it in the media. The news of my sex scandal eight years ago went out across national news. And before that happened, I sent a full disclosure letter. We had 7,500 supporters at the time, people I respected more than anything in the world. And I had already been too ashamed to say, look, I'm divorced. And now it was like, not only am I divorced, but I've also made these really short-sighted decisions and I'm not able to lead PEP anymore because of my choices. When I sent out that letter, even before the media hit, I saw no reason to keep living my life anymore. After I started PEP, I mean, I went all in. I know why God has put me on earth. I had $50,000 in my bank account. I put it all in the starting PEP. I cashed out my 401k for this. I had no plan B. And after the choices I had made, I not only screwed up you know, my job, my calling, I lost my identity as a wife, as a leader, And I also felt like I had put into jeopardy the lives of all the people that I had cared for. I felt so disappointed in myself. I felt so disgusted by myself. I didn't feel like I could look anyone in the eye. And when I sent this letter out to people, what saved my life, literally, because I was ready to take my life, was that about a thousand people wrote me back with emails of love and support, and what are you doing next? And you've always preached grace and second chances. We we stand with you. And when people asked me what I was doing next, I didn't have an answer. I was really, I was empty. I was self-defeated. I didn't believe in myself. I had no money. I didn't, I just didn't have an answer. And there was a small group of people. There were, there was a couple named Bill and Andrea Townsend, who I say are like my adopted mom and dad. And Bill was the first person to call me after my resignation mass email went out. And he said, sweetie, we love you. We believe in you. We want to love you back to life. Come and stay with us for a while. And I took them up on that. And I entered a one year period of intense healing. I went to therapy four days a week. I went to these leadership scrub camps where CEOs and pastors alike have gone. Apparently, I wasn't the only leader who has made big mistakes in my life. And I took a year to breathe and to figure out what I wanted to do next. And when I'm really depressed, I think one of the hallmarks of depression is that it feels hard to put one foot in front of the other. And I certainly had a hard time doing that. I felt lifeless. Like I normally I'm a super energetic person, very passion driven, vision oriented. And I didn't have any of that. And I lost my self confidence completely. And the way that other people believed in me and still thought that I had value in the world, they loved me for me. They didn't just love me for the results that I was producing for the world. That was really healing to me. 
And I would not wish a public scandal on anybody. But one of the benefits that I've seen now of having a scandal that nearly destroyed me is no one thinks I'm an angel. It's not a license to mess up again. I take my responsibility extremely seriously, and I'm really good at learning from my lessons. But I don't have the pressure now of being, people used to say that I was like a prison angel, and I knew I was not an angel. That was a, that's a lot of pressure to live up to. But now people know that I'm screwed up, and guys in prison say, you're just one of us. And to me, that's a big compliment. So I learned a lot about second chances, and the way that people believed in me is where my passion, I've always had a passion for underdogs and entrepreneurship and people with criminal history since I started this work. But now my commitment to the world is to use every ounce of me to give back and to invest in people who are at the same point that I was eight years ago, when I didn't have a vision for me, and I couldn't see above the clouds. But I still had some people who saw something and who said to me, you have what it takes to start this again. America needs you. One guy said to me, right after I started Defy, and I was trying to raise money on on the heels of a scandal. And he said, Defy will not only be national, Defy will be global. You have what it takes. I couldn't believe these people are, they sounded like crazy people to me, because I was so insecure. And today, Defy is mostly national, but we have even graduated, Defy graduates in Kenya, um, by working with another partner organization that's taken on our curriculum. And it's amazing to see what happens when people believe in people, others who have been written off. And if you were to go back in time, what would you tell yourself to differently when the, you know, when the, when the media broke that story and, you know, you were at a very kind of low point. I, I want to talk about like, were there any tools or tips or tactics that you have for, you know, people that are going through this, you know, terrible, um, a crisis. Yeah, cri- yeah exactly. Crisis in, the, in their life. I was very blessed to have amazing minds around me, protecting me and helping guide me through my crisis. So I do have some tips though, of what I learned from that and what I wish I had done. So first, something that I learned and was coached on is before you even confess, when you mess up, the most normal human brain thing to do is to lie, deny, or minimize. Because our brains typically think, if you knew the real me, I would not be good enough. You would reject me. I'm not okay the way that I am. What would happen if we messed up, but then we didn't lie about it? I was tempted to lie, but I had the best advisors around me who were like, cover your bases, give a meaningful apology, something I read about in the book as well. I wanted to say in the media, like, I'm resigning for personal reasons and leave it at that. But I knew the gossip and the rumors that would come about from that. So instead of doing that, I had a full disclosure letter. And I can't tell you how gut-wrenching it was to write that and then to send it. But my advice is, After you screw up, if you give a half confession or a half apology, and then you get caught for the other half, or even say you confess 95% of it, and then you get caught for 5% of it, the credibility that you will lose a second time could keep you down for a lot longer. Regardless of what you've done, you can have a better future. 
and admitting it to ourselves, what we've done, I think is one of the hardest steps. So find someone safe to confess a whole shebang to. And then, yeah, be careful with how you craft your words around your apology. And and another thing I learned is keep the circle of the confession to the circle of the sin. So the fact that I sent my my resignation and my confession, my apology to 7,500 people, that was a very rare circumstance. And it's the only time I've done something like that. But it's because my bad decisions led to me having to resign and 7,500 people had looked at me as a leader. So that's why I made such a broad confession and apology. But typically, if you've offended two people, you don't need to put an apology on Facebook. Apologize to those two people and really take ownership of what you've done. Don't cut corners in your apology. And one thing that really hurt me after I followed the wonderful wisdom of all these people with my confession and apology is when I saw after the media hit what random strangers wrote about me on the internet, people made up all types of other stuff. I thought I had already been uh, extremely disclosing of my mistakes. But it's amazing how some people like to kick you while you're down. And these internet cowards have no problem embellishing and writing up all kinds of other stuff. And when I read what people who didn't know me, the words that they called me on the internet, and the way that they added untrue details to my story, I nearly took my life because I couldn't believe the way that other people hated me. I thought I was disgusting enough, but then they made me more disgusting. I wish I had not read that stuff. And especially today with social media and internet bullies, um, it's really hard not to read everything that's out there about you. And then to let it like consume my brain. But I don't look at that stuff anymore. There are going to be cowards who will try to take you down and won't say it to your face because it's so much easier for them to write it behind your back anonymously. I wish I had not given them the mind share that I did. I wish I had been that much quicker to forgive myself. The stuff that I write about in my book has been my journey of healing and forgiveness for myself and for others over eight years. And I, I wish I could have read my book back then. So what is the best day you've experienced at Defy? I have so many. And I, I'm going to talk about our graduation day. And it's not just one day. It happens a lot. And for many of the men, women, and youth that we serve, it represents the biggest accomplishment of their lives because they have worked for about a year to graduate Defy inside prison. And our curriculum has been vetted by the Baylor University MBA program. And most of our people average an eighth grade education. So when they earn a Baylor University MBA program certificate, it's a really big deal. And we have a family reunification program and our family liaison uh, talks their mom or their dad or their brother into coming to the prison to witness this beautiful graduation moment. And a lot of times their kids will come. And on occasion, we get a child who has never met their father before. And they come and they embrace for the first time. Or many times we have parents who reconnect with their children for the first time in years. And the night before 
graduation, our dads or our moms that we serve, they decorate these little miniature t-shirts and the t-shirts go on these little adorable teddy bears. And then at one point in the graduation ceremony, after they have walked the stage and earned that Baylor certificate to pomp and circumstance, and we have all these CEOs and venture capitalists in the audience, and then we have the proud families in the audience and the moms say, I've been praying for this moment all of these years that my son would finally see himself through my eyes. Then the dads go and grab their little teddy bears that have the t-shirts on them and the t-shirts that they decorated that say like, daddy loves you or daddy's princess. And then we have the kids um, come up to the stage and their dad presents the child with this teddy bear while we're playing like a song like you are beautiful. And the dad says to their child, I love you. I will never leave you again. I'm here for you. And I don't know if that means much to you, the listener, but imagine you got in a car after a party, after drinking one too many and you hit somebody and it ended up sending you to prison for five to 10 years and you have children. And just because you made a really bad decision doesn't mean that you love your children any less. And every day you're probably beating yourself up for leaving your kids. And for the holidays or for your kids' birthdays, you don't get to send them presents. You don't get to do anything. Sometimes you only get to see them behind four inches of glass. So at the Defy graduation, there you are in your beautiful cap and gown and we make the families feel like a million bucks. And for you to get to present your child with this teddy bear is a big opportunity. It's a moment of reconnection and reunification. And at Defy, we make sure that it's not just a one-off moment. Through our friends and family program, we serve the families and the families get to take the same courses, like in the five love languages and parenting, even when you have a criminal history and conflict resolution and communication, the families take the same courses that the, the EITs do so that the whole family gets to transform together. And for the children, many of our kids are mad, rightfully so, at mom or dad for having left them for all these years. And sometimes they're teenagers, but under mad, a lot of times it's sad. And the kid just wishes that they could have a dad like everybody else does. And I've heard from a lot of our moms after they leave the graduation with the child, and they say, you know, my daughter, we had a six-hour drive home, and she didn't put the teddy bear down one time. And she sleeps with that teddy bear every single night. And so equipping our EITs to not only become entrepreneurs and amazing employees at their companies, but the parents that they've always wanted to be is a lot of what I live my life for. And every time that we have one of these graduations, it feels like it's my wedding or it feels like the best day of my life, or it feels like it just feels like a tremendous opportunity because I live to see people believe in themselves. And I live to see families reconnected and redeemed. How often do those days happen? I don't go to all of them because Defy is so big. I definitely don't lead every prison event anymore. But I think like in 2018, we'll probably have around 100 of these graduations throughout the country. And it kills me to not get to be there to shake every one of our graduates' hands. But more than wanting to shake every one of their hands, I want everyone who's incarcerated who wants a shot at redemption and rehabilitation to have that opportunity. So we have amazing staff that leads these Shark Tank pitch competitions and business coaching day where you can become a mentor in these graduation ceremonies. 
And there's one that happens like pretty much every week at some prison in the country through a DeFi program. I'm really, really proud of that. That's great. That's awesome. Well, cool. Well, Catherine, thank you again. This was great. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to create awareness. I really appreciate the great questions and the opportunity to share the vision and the work of DeFi. And for those who want to get involved in DeFi, where should they go? Our website is defyventures.org. We're a nonprofit, defyventures.org. And if you would like to be involved, you can come to prison and we're in prisons nationally. Um, you can become a, a mentor. If you're a business person, you can become a mentor. You can become an advocate uh, for second chances by sharing this podcast with your friends. You can invite me or someone from Defy or one of our graduates to come and share at your organization or your, your group. You can provide a scholarship. And for just $42 a month, it's $500 a year, that provides one scholarship that results in a less than 5% recidivism rate and a 95% employment rate. You can become a philanthropist, the philanthropist that you've wanted to be, we encourage you to become an advocate for second chances so that instead of you know complaining about this or that in the country, we're building the country that we want to live in. So we would love to have you involved in Defy. And if nothing else, even if you don't do a dang thing for Defy, which I would love for you to, I hope that if you do order the book on Amazon and, and read it, I hope that it will be one part of your journey in leading you to greater freedom for your own future. Boy, awesome. Well, Catherine, thank you for taking the time. Um, for those listening, go to Amazon.com, type in a second chance for you, for me, and for the rest of us to hire book. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you once again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Catherine Hoke. Thank you once again, Catherine, for coming on the show. It was very interesting hearing about her transition from a cushiony private equity salary to starting a venture helping those incarcerated, but also her personal story of the struggle and risks she had to go through to get to where she and the organization is today. You can find all of her links in the description. You can also follow your host, Corey Levy, on Twitter at Corey. Thank you once again for listening. We have episodes coming out every Tuesdays. Other than that, stay tuned and we'll see you again on Off Record.